What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Chapter 5 of The Lost World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Lost World by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 5 Question What with the physical shocks incidental to my first interview with Professor Challenger, and the mental ones which accompanied the second, I was a somewhat demoralized journalist by the time I found myself in Enmore Park once more. In my aching head the one thought was throbbing that there really was truth in this man's story, that it was of tremendous consequence, and that it would work up into inconceivable copy for the Gazette when I could obtain permission to use it. A taxicab was waiting at the end of the road, so I sprang into it and drove down to the office. McArdle was at his post as usual. Well, he cried expectantly, what may it run to? I'm thinking, young man, you have been in the wars. Don't tell me that he assaulted you. We had a little difference at first. What a man it is! What did you do? Well, he became more reasonable, and we had a chat. But I got nothing out of him, nothing for publication. I'm not so sure about that. You got a black eye out of him, and that's for publication. We can't have this reign of terror, Mr. Malone. We must bring the man to his bearings. I'll have a leaderette on him to-morrow that will raise a blister. Just give me the material, and I will engage to brand the fellow for ever. Professor Munchausen, how's that for an inset headline? Sir John Mandeville Redivivus, Cagliostro, all the impostors and bullies in history. I'll show him up for the fraud he is. I wouldn't do that, sir. Why not? Because he is not a fraud at all. What? roared McArdle. You don't mean to say that you really believe this stuff of his about mammoths and mastodons and great sea serpents? Well, I don't know about that. I don't think he makes any claims of that kind. But I do believe he has got something new. Then for heaven's sakes, man, write it up. I'm longing to, but all I know, he gave me in confidence, and on condition that I didn't. I condensed into a few sentences the professor's narrative. That's how it stands. McArdle looked deeply incredulous. Well, Mr. Malone, he said at last, about the scientific meeting tonight, there can be no privacy about that, anyhow. I don't suppose any paper will want to report it. For Waldron has been reported already a dozen times, and no one is aware that Challenger will speak. We may get a scoop, if we are lucky. You'll be there in any case, so you'll just give us a pretty full report. I'll keep space up to midnight. My day was a busy one, and I had an early dinner at the Savage Club with Tarp Henry, to whom I gave some account of my adventures. He listened with a skeptical smile on his gaunt face and roared with laughter on hearing that the professor had convinced me. "'My dear chap, things don't happen like that in real life,' 
People don't stumble upon enormous discoveries and then lose their evidence. Leave that to the novelists. The fellow is as full of tricks as is the monkey-house at the zoo. It's all bosh. But the American poet? He never existed. I saw his sketchbook. Challenger's sketchbook. You think he drew that animal? Of course he did. Who else? Well, then, the photographs. There was nothing in the photographs. By your own admission, you only saw a bird. A pterodactyl. That's what he says. He put the pterodactyl into your head. Well, then, the bones? First one out of an Irish stew, second one vamped up for the occasion. If you are clever and know your business, you can fake a bone as easily as you can a photograph. I began to feel uneasy. Perhaps, after all, I had been premature in my acquiescence. Then I had a sudden happy thought. "'Will you come to the meeting?' I asked. Tarp Henry looked thoughtful. "'He is not a popular person, the genial challenger,' said he. "'A lot of people have accounts to settle with him. I should say he is about the best hated man in London.' If the medical students turn out there will be no end of a rag. I don't want to get into a bear garden. You might at least do him the justice to hear him state his own case. Well, perhaps it's only fair. All right, I'm your man for the evening. When we arrived at the hall we found a much greater concourse than I had expected. A line of electric broughams discharged their little cargoes of white-bearded professors, while the dark stream of humbler pedestrians, who crowded through the arched doorway, showed that the audience would be popular as well as scientific. Indeed, it became evident to us as soon as we had taken our seats that a youthful and even boyish spirit was abroad in the gallery and the back portions of the hall. Looking behind me, I could see rows of faces in the familiar medical student type. Apparently the great hospitals had each sent down their contingent. The behavior of the audience at present was good-humored, but mischievous. Scraps of popular songs were chorused with an enthusiasm which was a strange prelude to a scientific lecture, and there was already a tendency to personal chaff which promised a jovial evening to others however embarrassing it might be to the recipients of these dubious honors. Thus, when old Dr. Meldrum, with his well-known curly-brimmed opera hat, appeared upon the platform, there was such a universal query of, Where did you get that tile? that he hurriedly removed it, and concealed it furtively under his chair. When gouty Professor Wadley limped down to his seat, there was general affectionate inquiries from all parts of the hall as to the exact state of his poor toe, which caused him obvious embarrassment. The greatest demonstration of all, however, was at the entrance of my new acquaintance, Professor Challenger, when he passed down to take his place at the extreme end of the front row of the platform. Such a yell of welcome broke forth when his black beard first protruded round the corner that I began to suspect Tarp Henry was right in his surmise, and that this assemblage was there not merely for the sake of the lecture, but because it had got rumoured abroad that the famous professor would take part in the proceedings. 
There was some sympathetic laughter on his entrance among the front benches of well-dressed spectators, as though the demonstration of the students in this instance was not unwelcome to them. That greeting was, indeed, a frightful outburst of sound, the uproar of the carnivora cage when the step of the bucket-bearing keeper is heard in the distance. There was an offensive tone in it, perhaps, and yet in the main it struck me as mere riotous outcry, the noisy reception of one who amused and interested them, rather than of one they disliked or despised. Challenger smiled with weary and tolerant contempt, as a kindly man would meet the yapping of a litter of puppies. He sat slowly down, blew out his chest, passed his hand caressingly down his beard, and looked with drooping eyelids and supercilious eyes at the crowded hall before him. The uproar of his advent had not yet died away, when Professor Ronald Murray, the chairman, and Mr. Waldron, the lecturer, threaded their way to the front, and the proceedings began. Professor Murray will, I am sure, excuse me if I say that he has the common fault of most Englishmen of being inaudible. Why on earth people who have something to say which is worth hearing should not take the slight trouble to learn how to make it heard is one of the strange mysteries of modern life. Their methods are as reasonable as to try to pour some precious stuff from the spring to the reservoir through a non-conducting pipe, which could by the least effort be opened. Professor Murray made several profound remarks to his white tie and to the water-carafe upon the table, with a humorous twinkling aside to the silver candlestick upon his right. Then he sat down, and Mr. Waldron, the famous popular lecturer, rose amid a general murmur of applause. He was a stern, gaunt man with a harsh voice and an aggressive manner but he had the merit of knowing how to assimilate the ideas of other men, and to pass them on in a way which was intelligible, and even interesting to the lay public, with a happy knack of being funny about the most unlikely objects, so that the precession of the equinox, or the formation of a vertebrate, became a highly humorous process, as treated by him. It was a bird's-eye view of creation, as interpreted by science, which, in language always clear and sometimes picturesque, he unfolded before us. He told us of the globe, a huge mass of flaming gas, flaring through the heavens. Then he pictured the solidification, the cooling, the wrinkling which formed the mountains, the steam which turned to water, the slow preparation of the stage upon which was to be played the inexplicable drama of life. On the origin of life itself he was discreetly vague. That the germs of it could hardly have survived the original roasting was, he declared, fairly certain. Therefore it had come later. Had it built itself out of the cooling, inorganic elements of the globe? Very likely. Had the germs of it arrived from outside upon a meteor? It was hardly conceivable. On the whole, the wisest man was the least dogmatic upon the point. We could not, or at least we had not succeeded up to date in making organic life in our laboratories out of inorganic materials. The gulf between the dead and the living was something which our chemistry could not as yet bridge. But there was a higher and subtler chemistry of nature which, working with great forces over long epochs, 
might well produce results which were impossible for us. There the matter must be left. This brought the lecturer to the great ladder of animal life, beginning low down in mollusks and feeble sea creatures, then up, rung by rung, through reptiles and fishes, till at last we came to a kangaroo rat, a creature which brought forth its young alive, the direct ancestor of all mammals, and presumably, therefore, of every one in the audience. No, no, from a skeptical student in the back row. If the young gentleman in the red tie who cried, No, no, and who presumably claimed to have been hatched out of an egg, would wait upon him after the lecture, he would be glad to see such a curiosity. Laughter. It was strange to think that the climax of all the age-long process of nature had been the creation of that gentleman in the red tie. But had the process stopped? Was this gentleman to be taken as the final type, the be-all and end-all of development? He hoped that he would not hurt the feelings of the gentleman in the red tie if he maintained that, whatever virtues that gentleman might possess in private life, still the vast processes of the universe were not fully justified if they were to end entirely in his production. Evolution was not a spent force, but one still working, and even greater achievements were in store. Having thus, amid a general titter, played very prettily with his interrupter, the lecturer went back to his picture of the past, the drying of the seas, the emergence of the sandbank, the sluggish, viscous life which lay upon their margins, the overcrowded lagoons, the tendency of the sea-creatures to take refuge upon the mud-flats, the abundance of food awaiting them, their consequent enormous growth. "'Hence, ladies and gentlemen,' he added, "'that frightful brood of saurians which still affright our eyes, when seen in the Wielden, or in the Solenhofen slates, but which were fortunately extinct long before the first appearance of mankind upon this planet. "'Question!' boomed a voice from the platform. Mr. Waldron was a strict disciplinarian, with a gift of acid humour, as exemplified upon the gentleman with the red tie, which made it perilous to interrupt him but this interjection appeared to him so absurd that he was at a loss how to deal with it. So looks the Shakespearean who is confronted by a rancid Baconian, or the astronomer who is assailed by a flat-earth fanatic. He paused for a moment, and then, raising his voice, repeated slowly the words, "'Which were extinct before the coming of man.' "'Question!' boomed the voice once more. Waldron looked with amazement along the line of professors upon the platform, until his eyes fell upon the figure of Challenger, who leaned back in his chair with closed eyes and an amused expression, as if he were smiling in his sleep. "'I see,' said Waldron, with a shrug. "'It is my friend Professor Challenger.' And amid laughter he renewed his lecture, as if this was a final explanation and no more need be said." But the incident was far from being closed. Whatever path the lecturer took amid the wilds of the pass seemed invariably to lead him to some assertion as to extinct or prehistoric life, which instantly brought the same bull's bellow from the professor. The audience began to anticipate it, and to roar with delight when it came. 
the packed benches of students joined in, and every time Challenger's beard opened, before any sound could come forth, there was a yell of question from a hundred voices, and an answering countercry of order and shame from as many more. Waldron, though a hardened lecturer and a strong man, became rattled. He hesitated, stammered, repeated himself, got snarled in a long sentence, and finally turned furiously upon the cause of his troubles. "'This is really intolerable,' he cried, glaring across the platform. "'I must ask you, Professor Challenger, to cease these ignorant and unmannerly interruptions.' There was a hush over the hall. The students rigid with delight at seeing the high gods on Olympus quarrelling among themselves. Challenger levered his bulky figure slowly out of his chair. "'I must in turn ask you, Mr. Waldron,' he said, "'to cease to make assertions which are not in strict accordance with scientific fact.' The words unloosed a tempest. "'Shame! Shame! Give him a hearing! Put him out! Shove him off the platform! Fair play!' emerged from the general roar of amusement or execration. The chairman was on his feet, flapping both his hands and bleeding excitedly. "'Professor Challenger, uh, personal views, later!' were the solid peaks above his clouds of inaudible mutter. The interrupter bowed, smiled, stroked his beard, and relapsed into his chair. Waldron, very flushed and warlike, continued his observations. Now and then, as he made an assertion, he shot a venomous glance at his opponent, who seemed to be slumbering deeply, with the same broad, happy smile upon his face. At last the lecture came to an end. I am inclined to think that it was a premature one, as the peroration was hurried and disconnected. The thread of the argument had been rudely broken, and the audience was restless and expectant. Waldron sat down, and after a chirrup from the chairman, Professor Challenger rose and advanced to the edge of the platform. In the interest of my paper, I took down his speech verbatim. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' he began, amid a sustained interruption from the back, "'I beg pardon, ladies, gentlemen, and children.' I must apologize, I had inadvertently omitted a considerable section of this audience. Tumult, during which the professor stood with one hand raised, and his enormous head nodding sympathetically, as if he were bestowing a pontifical blessing upon the crowd. I have been selected to move a vote of thanks to Mr. Waldron for the very picturesque and imaginative address to which we have just listened. There are points in it with which I disagree, and it has been my duty to indicate them as they arose. But, none the less, Mr. Waldron has accomplished his object well, that object being to give a simple and interesting account of what he conceives to have been the history of our planet. Popular lectures are the easiest to listen to, but Mr. Waldron—here he beamed and blinked at the lecturer— will excuse me when I say that they are necessarily both superficial and misleading, since they have to be graded to the comprehension of an ignorant audience. Ironical cheering. Popular lecturers are in their nature parasitic. Angry gesture of protest from Mr. Waldron. The exploit for fame or cash, 
the work which has been done by their indigent and unknown brethren. One smallest new fact obtained in the laboratory, one brick built into the temple of science, far outweighs any second-hand exposition which passes an idle hour, but can leave no useful result behind it. I put forward this obvious reflection, not out of any desire to disparage Mr. Waldron in particular, but that you may not lose your sense of proportion, and mistake the acolyte for the high priest. At this point Mr. Waldron whispered to the chairman, who half rose and said something severely to his water-carafe. "'But enough of this!' loud and prolonged cheers. "'Let me pass to some subject of wider interest. What is the particular point upon which I, as an original investigator,' have challenged our lecturer's accuracy. It is upon the permanence of certain types of animal life upon the earth. I do not speak upon this subject as an amateur, nor, I may add, as a popular lecturer, but I speak as one whose scientific conscience compels him to adhere closely to facts, when I say that Mr. Waldron is very wrong in supposing that because he has never himself seen a so-called prehistoric animal, Therefore these creatures no longer exist. They are indeed, as he has said, our ancestors, but they are, if I may use the expression, our contemporary ancestors, who can still be found with all their hideous and formidable characteristics if one has but the energy and hardihood to seek their haunts. Creatures which were supposed to be Jurassic, monsters who would hunt down and devour our largest and fiercest mammals still exist cries of bosh prove it how do you know question how do i know you ask me i know because i have visited their secret haunts i know because i have seen some of them applause uproar and a voice liar am i a liar general hearty and noisy assent did i hear someone say that i was a liar will the person who called me a liar kindly stand up that i may know him a voice here he is sir and an inoffensive little person in spectacles struggling violently was held up among a group of students did you venture to call me a liar no sir no shouted the accused and disappeared like a jack-in-the-box if any person in this hall dares to doubt my veracity, I shall be glad to have a few words with him after the lecture. Liar! Who said that? Again the inoffensive one, plunging desperately, was elevated high into the air. If I come down among you— General chorus of, Come, love, come! Which interrupted the proceedings for some moments— while the chairman, standing up and waving both his arms, seemed to be conducting the music. The professor, with his face flushed, his nostrils dilated, and his beard bristling, was now in a proper berserk mood. Every great discoverer has been met with the same incredulity, the sure brand of a generation of fools. When great facts are laid before you, you have not the intuition the imagination which would help you to understand them. You can only throw mud at the men who have risked their lives to open new fields to science. You persecute the prophets. Galileo, Darwin, and I, 
prolonged cheering and complete interruption. All this is from my hurried notes taken at the time, which give little notion of the absolute chaos to which the assembly had by this time been reduced. So terrific was the uproar that several ladies had already beaten a hurried retreat. Grave and reverend seniors seemed to have caught the prevailing spirit as badly as the students, and I saw white-bearded men rising and shaking their fists at the obdurate professor. The whole great audience seethed and simmered like a boiling pot. The professor took a step forward and raised both his hands. There was something so big and arresting and virile in the man that the clatter and shouting died gradually away before his commanding gesture and his masterful eyes. He seemed to have a definite message. They hushed to hear it. "'I will not detain you,' he said. "'It is not worth it. Truth is truth, and the noise of a number of foolish young men, and I fear I must add, of their equally foolish seniors, cannot affect the matter. I claim that I have opened a new field of science. You dispute it. Cheers. Then I put you to the test. Will you accredit one or more of your own number to go out as your representatives, and test my statement in your name? Mr. Summerlee, the veteran professor of comparative anatomy, rose among the audience, a tall, thin, bitter man, with the withered aspect of a theologian. He wished, he said, to ask Professor Challenger whether the results to which he had alluded in his remarks had been obtained during a journey to the headwaters of the Amazon made by him two years before. Professor Challenger answered that they had. Mr. Summerlee desired to know how it was that Professor Challenger claimed to have made discoveries in those regions which had been overlooked by Wallace, Bates, and other previous explorers of established scientific repute. Professor Challenger answered that Mr. Summerlee appeared to be confusing the Amazon with the Thames, that it was in reality a somewhat larger river, that Mr. Summerlee might be interested to know that with the Orinoco, which communicated with it, some fifty thousand miles of country were opened up and that in so vast a space it was not impossible for one person to find what another had missed. Mr. Summerlee declared, with an acid smile, that he fully appreciated the difference between the Thames and the Amazon, which lay in the fact that any assertion about the former could be tested, while about the latter it could not. He would be obliged if Professor Challenger would give the latitude and the longitude of the country in which prehistoric animals were to be found. Professor Challenger replied that he reserved such information for good reasons of his own, but would be prepared to give it, with proper precautions, to a committee chosen from the audience. Would Mr. Summerlee serve on such a committee and test his story in person? Mr. Summerlee. Yes, I will great cheering. Professor Challenger. Then I guarantee that I will place in your hands such material as will enable you to find your way. It is only right, however, since Mr. Summerlee goes to check my statement that I should have one or more with him who may check his. I will not disguise from you that there are difficulties and dangers. Mr. Summerlee will need a younger colleague. May I ask for volunteers? It is thus that the great crisis of a man's life springs out at him. 
Could I have imagined when I entered that hall that I was about to pledge myself to a wilder adventure than had ever come to me in my dreams? But Gladys! Was it not the very opportunity of which she spoke? Gladys would have told me to go. I had sprung to my feet, I was speaking, and yet I had prepared no words. Tarp Henry, my companion, was plucking at my skirts, and I heard him whispering, "'Sit down, Malone, don't make a public ass of yourself.' At the same time I was aware that a tall, thin man, with dark gingery hair, a few seats in front of me, was also upon his feet. He glared back at me with hard, angry eyes, but I refused to give way. "'I will go, Mr. Chairman,' I kept repeating over and over again. "'Name! Name!' cried the audience. "'My name is Edward Dunn Malone. I am the reporter of the Daily Gazette. I claim to be an absolutely unprejudiced witness.' "'What is your name, sir?' the chairman asked of my tall rival. I am Lord John Roxton. I have already been up the Amazon. I know all the ground, and have special qualifications for this investigation. Lord John Roxton's reputation as a sportsman and a traveller is, of course, world-famous, said the chairman. At the same time, it would certainly be as well to have a member of the press upon such an expedition. Then I move said Professor Challenger, that both these gentlemen be elected, as representatives of this meeting, to accompany Professor Summerlee upon his journey to investigate and report upon the truth of my statements. And so, amid shouting and cheering, our fate was decided, and I found myself borne away in the human current which swirled towards the door, with my mind half stunned by the vast new project which had risen so suddenly before it. As I emerged from the hall I was conscious for a moment of a rush of laughing students, down the pavement, and of an arm wielding a heavy umbrella which rose and fell in the midst of them. Then, amid a mixture of groans and cheers, Professor Challenger's electric brougham slid from the curb, and I found myself walking under the silvery lights of Regent Street, full of thoughts of Gladys and of wonder as to my future. Suddenly there was a touch at my elbow. I turned and found myself looking into the humorous, masterful eyes of the tall, thin man who had volunteered to be my companion on this strange quest. "'Mr. Malone, I understand,' said he. "'We are to be companions, what? My rooms are just over the road, in the Albany.' Perhaps you will have the kindness to spare me half an hour, for there are one or two things that I badly want to say to you. End of chapter Chapter 6 of The Lost World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Lost World, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 6. I Was the Flail of the Lord. 
Lord John Roxton and I turned down Vigo Street together, and through the dingy portals of the famous aristocratic rookery. At the end of a long drab passage, my new acquaintance pushed open a door and turned on an electric switch. A number of lamps, shining through tinted shades, bathed the whole great room before us in a ruddy radiance. Standing in the doorway and glancing round me, I had a general impression of extraordinary comfort and elegance, combined with an atmosphere of masculine virility. Everywhere there were mingled the luxury of the wealthy men of taste and the careless untidiness of the bachelor. Rich furs and strange iridescent mats from some oriental bazaar were scattered upon the floor. Pictures and prints, which even my unpractised eyes could recognize as being of great price and rarity, hung thick upon the walls. Sketches of boxers, of ballet girls, and of racehorses alternated with a sensuous Fragonard, a martial Girardet, and a dreamy Turner. But amid these varied ornaments there were scattered the trophies which brought back strongly to my recollection the fact that Lord John Roxton was one of the great all-round sportsmen and athletes of his day. A dark blue oar crossed with a cherry-pink one above his mantelpiece spoke of the old Oxonian and Leander man, while the foils and boxing-gloves above and below them were the tools of a man who had won supremacy with each. Like a dado round the room was the jutting line of splendid heavy game-heads, the best of their sort from every quarter of the world, with the rare white rhinoceros of the Lado enclave drooping its supercilious lip above them all. In the centre of the rich red carpet was a black and gold Louis Quinze table, a lovely antique, now sacrilegiously desecrated, with marks of glasses and the scars of cigar-stumps. On it stood a silver tray of smokables and a burnished spirit-stand, from which and an adjacent siphon my silent host proceeded to charge two high glasses. Having indicated an armchair to me, and placed my refreshment near it, he handed me a long, smooth Havana. Then, seating himself opposite to me, he looked at me long and fixedly with his strange, twinkling, reckless eyes, eyes of a cold light blue, the color of a glacier lake. Through the thin haze of my cigar-smoke I noted the details of a face which was already familiar to me from many photographs, the strongly curved nose, the hollow, worn cheeks, the dark, ruddy hair, thin at the top, the crisp, virile moustaches, the small aggressive tuft upon his projecting chin. Something there was of Napoleon Third, something of Don Quixote and yet again something which was the essence of the English country gentleman, the keen, alert, open-air lover of dogs and of horses. His skin was of a rich flower-pot red from sun and wind. His eyebrows were tufted and overhanging, which gave those naturally cold eyes an almost ferocious aspect, an impression which was increased by his strong and furrowed brow. In figure he was spare, but very strongly built. Indeed, he had often proved that there were few men in England capable of such sustained exertions. His height was a little over six feet, but he seemed shorter on account of a peculiar rounding of the shoulders. Such was the famous Lord John Roxton as he sat opposite to me, 
biting hard upon his cigar and watching me steadily in a long and embarrassing silence. "'Well,' said he at last, "'we've gone and done it, young fellow, my lad.' This curious phrase he pronounced as if it were all one word, "'Young fellow, my lad.' "'Yes, we've taken a jump, you and me, and I suppose now that when you went into that room there was no such notion in your head, what?' no thought of it the same here no thought of it and here we are up to our necks in the tureen why i have only been back three weeks from uganda and taken a place in scotland and signed the lease and all pretty goings on what how does it hit you well it is all in the main line of my business i am a journalist on the gazette of course you said so when you took it on by the way i've got a small job for you if you'll help me with pleasure don't mind taking a risk do you what is the risk well it's ballinger he's the risk you've heard of him no why young fella where have you lived sir john ballinger is the best gentleman jock in the north country I could hold him on the flat at my best, but over jumps he's my master. Well, it's an open secret that when he's out of training he drinks hard, striking an average, he calls it. He got delirium on Tuesday, and has been raging like a devil ever since. His room is above this. The doctors say that it is all up with the old dear, unless some food has got into him, but as he lies in bed with a revolver on his coverlet, and swears he will put six of the best through any one that comes near him, there's been a bit of a strike among the serving-men. He's a hard nail, is Jack, and a dead shot, too. But you can't leave a grand national winner to die like that, what? What do you mean to do, then? I asked. Well, my idea was that you and I could rush him. He may be dozing, and at the worst he can only wing one of us and the other should have him. If we can get his bolster cover round his arms, and then phone up a stomach-pump, we'll give the old dear the supper of his life." It was a rather desperate business to come suddenly into one's day's work. I don't think that I am a particularly brave man. I have an Irish imagination which makes the unknown and the untried more terrible than they are. On the other hand, I was brought up with a horror of cowardice and with a terror of such a stigma. I dare say that I could throw myself over a precipice, like the Hun in the history-books, if my courage to do it were questioned, and yet it would surely be pride and fear, rather than courage, which would be my inspiration. Therefore, although every nerve in my body shrank from the whisky-maddened figure which I pictured in the room above, I still answered, in as careless a voice as I could command, that I was ready to go. Some further remark of Lord Roxton's about the danger only made me irritable. "'Talking won't make it any better,' said I. "'Come on.' I rose from my chair, and he from his. Then, with a little confidential chuckle of laughter, he patted me two or three times on the chest, finally pushing me back into my chair. "'All right, Sonny, my lad, you'll do,' said he. I looked up in surprise. 
I saw after Jack Ballinger myself this morning. He blew a hole in the skirt of my kimono, bless his shaky old hand, but we got a jacket on him, and he's to be all right in a week. I say, young fella, I hope you don't mind. What? You see, between you and me close-tiled, I look on this South American business as a mighty serious thing, and if I have a pal with me I want a man I can bank on. So I sized you down, and I'm bound to say that you came well out of it. You see, it's all up to you and me, for this old Summerlee man will want dry nursing from the first. By the way, are you by any chance the Malone who is expected to get his rugby cap for Ireland? A reserve, perhaps. I thought I remembered your face. Why, I was there when you got that try against Richmond, as fine a swervin' run as I saw the whole season. I never miss a rugby match if I can help it, for it is the manliest game we have left. Well, I didn't ask you in here just to talk sport. We've got to fix our business. Here are the sailings on the first page of the Times. There's a booth-boat for Para next Wednesday week, and if the professor and you can work it, I think we should take it, Walt. Very good. I'll fix it with him. What about your outfit? My paper will see to that. Can you shoot? About average territorial standard. Good Lord! As bad as that! It's the last thing you young fellows think of learning. You all been bees without stings so far as looking after the hive goes. You'll look silly some of these days when someone comes along and sneaks the honey. But you'll need to hold your gun straight in South America, for unless our friend the professor is a madman or a liar, we may see some queer things before we get back. What gun have you? He crossed to an oaken cupboard, and as he threw it open I caught a glimpse of glistening rows of parallel barrels like the pipes of an organ. "'I'll see what I can spare you out of my own battery,' said he. One by one he took out a succession of beautiful rifles, opening and shutting them with a snap and a clang, and then patting them as he put them back into the rack as tenderly as a mother would fondle her children. "'This is a Bland's 577 Exide Express,' said he. "'I got that big fellow with it. He glanced up at the white rhinoceros. Ten more yards, and he would have added me to his collection. On that conical bullet his one chance hangs, till the weak one's advantage fair. Hope you know your Gordon, for he's the poet of the horse and the gun and the man that handles both. Now, here's a useful tool. Four seven zero. Telescopic sight. Double ejector. Point blank up to three fifty. That's the rifle I used against the Peruvian slave-drivers three years ago. I was the flail of the Lord up in those parts, I may tell you, though you won't find it in any blue book. There are times, young fella, when every one of us must take a stand for human right and justice, or you never feel clean again. That's why I made a little war on my own, declared it myself, waged it myself, ended it myself. Each of those nicks is for a slave murderer. A good row of them, what? That big one is for Pedro Lopez, the king of them all, that I killed in a backwater of the Putamayo River. Now, here's something that would do for you. He took out a beautiful brown and silver rifle. 
well rubbered at the stalk, sharply sighted five cartridges to the clip. You can trust your life to that. He handed it to me and closed the door of his oak cabinet. By the way, he continued, coming back to his chair, what do you know of this Professor Challenger? I never saw him till today. Well, neither did I. It's funny we should both sail under sealed orders from a man we don't know. He seemed an uppish old bird. His brothers of science don't seem too fond of him, either. How came you to take an interest in the affair? I told him shortly my experiences of the morning, and he listened intently. Then he drew out a map of South America and laid it on the table. "'I believe every single word he said to you was the truth,' said he earnestly. "'And, mind you, I have something to go on when I speak like that. South America is a place I love, and I think, if you take it right through from Darien to Fuego, it's the grandest, richest, most wonderful bit of earth upon this planet.' People don't know it yet, and don't realize what it may become. I have been up and down it from end to end, and had two dry seasons in those very parts, as I told you when I spoke of the war I made on the slave dealers. Well, when I was up there, I heard some yarns of the same kind, traditions of Indians and the like, but with something behind them, no doubt. The more you knew of that country, young fellow, the more you would understand that anything was possible. Anything. There are just some narrow water lanes along which folk travel, and outside that it is all darkness. Now, down here in the Mato Grande, he swept his cigar over a part of the map, or up in this corner where three countries meet, nothing would surprise me. As that chap said to-night, there were fifty thousand miles of waterway running through a forest that is very near the size of Europe. You and I could be as far away from each other as Scotland is from Constantinople, and yet each of us be in the same great Brazilian forest. Man has just made a track here and a scrape there in the maze. Why, the river rises and falls the best part of forty feet, and half the country is a morass that you can't pass over. Why shouldn't something new and wonderful lie in such a country? And why shouldn't we be the men to find it out? Besides, he added, his queer, gaunt face shining with delight, there's a sportin' risk in every mile of it. I'm like an old golf-ball. I've had all the white paint knocked off me long ago. Life can whack me about now, and it can't leave a mark. But a sportin' risk, young fella, that's the salt of existence. Then it's worth livin' again. We're all gettin' a deal too soft and dull and comfy. Give me the great wastelands and the wide spaces, with a gun in my fist and something to look for that's worth findin'. I've tried war, and steeplechasing and aeroplanes, but this huntin' of beasts that look like a lobster supper dream is a brand new sensation." He chuckled with glee at the prospect. Perhaps I have dwelt too long upon this new acquaintance, but he is to be my comrade for many a day, and so I have tried to set him down as I first saw him, with his quaint personality and his queer little tricks of speech and of thought. It was only the need of getting in the account of my meeting which drew me at last from his company. I left him seated amid his pink radiance, oiling the lock of his favorite rifle 
while he still chuckled to himself at the thought of the adventures which awaited us. It was very clear to me that if dangers lay before us I could not in all England have found a cooler head or braver spirit with which to share them. That night, wearied as I was after the wonderful happenings of the day, I sat late with McArdle, the news editor, explaining to him the whole situation, which he thought important enough to bring next morning before the notice of Sir George Beaumont, the chief. It was agreed that I should write home full accounts of my adventures in the shape of successive letters to McArdle, and that these should either be edited for the Gazette as they arrived, or held back to be published later, according to the wishes of Professor Challenger since we could not yet know what conditions he might attach to those directions which should guide us to the unknown land. In response to a telephone inquiry, we received nothing more definite than a fulmination against the press, ending up with the remark that if we would notify our boat, he would hand us any directions which he might think it proper to give us at the moment of starting. A second question from us failed to elicit any answer at all save a plaintive bleat from his wife to the effect that her husband was in a very violent temper already, and that she hoped we would do nothing to make it worse. A third attempt, later in the day, provoked a terrific crash, and a subsequent message from the central exchange that Professor Challenger's receiver had been shattered. After that we abandoned all attempt at communication. And now, my patient readers, I can address you directly no longer. From now onwards, if indeed any continuation of this narrative should ever reach you, it can only be through the paper which I represent. In the hands of the editor I leave this account of the events which have led up to one of the most remarkable expeditions of all time, so that if I never return to England there shall be some record as to how the affair came about. I am writing these last lines in the saloon of the booth liner Francisca, and they will go back by the pilot to the keeping of Mr. McArdle. Let me draw one last picture before I close the notebook, a picture which is the last memory of the old country which I bear away with me. It is a wet, foggy morning in the late spring. A thin, cold rain is falling. Three shining mackintoshed figures are walking down the quay making for the gangplank of the great liner from which the blue peter is flying. In front of them a porter pushes a trolley piled high with trunks, wraps, and gun-cases. Professor Summerlee, a long, melancholy figure, walks with dragging steps and drooping head, as one who is already profoundly sorry for himself. Lord John Roxton steps briskly, and his thin, eager face beams forth between his hunting cap and his muffler. As for myself, I am glad to have got the bustling days of preparation and the pangs of leave-taking behind me, and I have no doubt that I show it in my bearing. Suddenly, just as we reach the vessel, there is a shout behind us. It is Professor Challenger, who had promised to see us off. He runs after us, a puffing, red-faced, irascible figure. "'No, thank you,' says he. "'I should much prefer not to go aboard. I have only a few words to say to you, and they can very well be said where we are. I beg you not to imagine that I am in any way indebted to you for making this journey. I would have you to understand that it is a matter of perfect indifference to me, 
and I refuse to entertain the most remote sense of personal obligation. Truth is truth, and nothing which you can report can affect it in any way, though it may excite the emotions and allay the curiosity of a number of very ineffectual people. My directions for your instruction and guidance are in this sealed envelope. You will open it when you reach a town upon the Amazon which is called Manaus, but not until the date and hour which is marked upon the outside. Have I made myself clear? I leave the strict observance of my conditions entirely to your honor. No, Mr. Malone, I will place no restriction upon your correspondence, since the ventilation of the facts is the object of your journey. But I demand that you shall give no particulars as to your exact destination, and that nothing be actually published until your return. Good-bye, sir. You have done something to mitigate my feelings for the loathsome profession to which you unhappily belong. Good-bye, Lord John. Science is, as I understand, a sealed book to you, but you may congratulate yourself upon the hunting-field which awaits you. You will, no doubt, have the opportunity of describing in the field how you brought down the rocketing dimorphodon. And good-bye to you also, Professor Summerlee. If you are still capable of self-improvement, of which I am frankly unconvinced, you will surely return to London a wiser man. So he turned upon his heel, and a minute later from the deck I could see his short, squat figure bobbing about in the distance as he made his way back to his train. Well, we are well down the channel now. There's the last bell for letters, and it's good-bye to the pilot. We'll be down hull down on the old trail from now on. God bless all we leave behind us, and send us safely back. End of chapter If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.